Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to be having in a few weeks. It's hard to believe Christmas is right around the corner. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44. As our children are leaving, Genesis chapter 44. Many of you are probably familiar with a great woman of faith. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. She wrote the famous book, The Hiding Place. If you know anything about Cory Ten Boom, she and her family lived in Holland during World War II, during the Nazi occupation, when they tried to get rid of the Jews. And so what she did is she and her family hid the Jews in their home. That's why the book's called The Hiding Place. But eventually they got caught, and she and her sister Betsy had to go to a concentration camp in Ravensbrück, Germany. And in this concentration camp, there was a lot of evil things that happened. And there was this one prison guard, this malicious, sadistic prison guard, who always made life difficult for Corey and her sister Betsy. He mercilessly beat them. He got glee out of sending people to the gas chamber. And eventually, Betsy died in the concentration camp. And the war was over. And after a few years in 1947, Corey Ten Boom, who survived the concentration camp, she went back and traveled through Europe to tell her story. And in 1947, in a church in Munich, Germany, she was sharing about her experience at the concentration camp, and she talked about forgiveness, and she talked about how God takes our sins and, and throws them to the bottom of the ocean. And as she was speaking about forgiveness, Towards the end of her speech, this balding, heavyset man begins walking towards her. And she remembers that this was the sadistic man who was in the concentration camp that made life miserable for her and her sister. And he got closer and closer, and all those memories came flooding back in her heart and her mind of what she had to endure in the concentration camp, walking in shame past him. And then all of a sudden, he reaches out her, his hand and says, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that all of our sins are at the bottom of the ocean. She didn't know what to do. She was frozen. She couldn't move. And then in her heart, she prayed, Lord, grant me the ability to forgive this man. And so with all the strength that she could muster from the power of the Lord, she extended her hand and in tears started coming down her face. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. How can you possibly forgive somebody who's hurt you so deeply? Why is forgiveness sometimes one of the hardest things we have to struggle with? Why is it so difficult? That's the looming question before us this morning. How can you be freed 
to forgive those who have hurt you. We're probably very familiar with Romans 8, 28 and 29. Very famous passage of Scripture. Paul tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And often this verse gets misinterpreted, misunderstood. A lot of people think, it's a blank check that God's going to make everything work out the way that I want it to work out. And that's not what the text says. The text says God works out all things for good. Even those all things that may be painful, those things that may be hard or difficult, God works those out for good the way that He defines good. And the second half of that verse says that God, before the foundation of the earth, has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. So the most important thing in God's mind is for us to look more like Jesus. And so God may ordain, and God may allow, and God may take us through very painful situations so that in the end... All things work out for good, even the harmful things that people may do to you. God can use that harm. God can use that evil that people perpetrate against you and bring about good. And so we see this truth vividly expressed in Genesis chapter 44 and 45. And so this is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the big reveal. This is where the mask finally comes off. All this time, Joseph has not disclosed himself to his brothers. But this is the climax of the story. And I want you to see two things this morning as we we go through this text. Number one, I want you to see the change in Judah. We've looked at the character Judah. I want you to see the change in Judah. And number two, I want you to see the absolute sovereignty of God who works out all things for good. So this unfolds in three scenes for us this morning. So let's look at scene one, Joseph's final test. So let's pick up in Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 through 13. If you remember last week how it ended, all the brothers are together and they're there at the table eating and Benjamin has gotten five times more than the rest of the brothers. And so Joseph is trying to play this game to see if the older brothers are still going to have jealousy against their younger brother the way that they had against him 22 years earlier when they threw him into the pit. So let's pick up and look at this final test. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food so much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And they'd only gone a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you've overtaken them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servant is found with it shall die. And we will also be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. 
He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. This is the final test. And what does Joseph tell his, his servant to do? Put the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Hide it there. Let them go on their way. And as they get a little further out, go upon them, stop them, and say, you're stealing from us. What are you doing trying to steal from us? Now, we know this is a setup. It's the final test. And why Benjamin, again, Joseph's wanting to see if they're going to turn on their son or their younger brother, Benjamin. And so this cup is called the cup of divination. What in the world is a cup of divination? There was an ancient practice in Egypt called hydromancy, where they would take liquids in a cup and try to tell the future by looking at how the liquids moved. Kind of like reading tea leaves today. Now the question is, did Joseph practice this? No, we know Joseph didn't practice this because this is sorcery. This is forbidden by God. We know that all throughout Joseph's career, it's been God who's given him the interpretation. I think this is part of the, the ruse. This is part of the ploy. This is, this is part of the scheme. He, he's trying to heighten the intensity here. All part of the setup. And so these brothers are very bold in their innocence. Basically, why in the world will we steal twice? Remember the first time they came and they found the, the grain and the money back in their sacks and they brought it back a second time? And why in the world would they steal twice? And this time, why would they steal silver or gold? And so they're very assured in their innocence. Notice verse 9. They, 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 they make the statement, whoever's guilty, he'll die. We are so confident in our innocence that whoever's found with the cup, that person will die. And then comes the Academy Award winning moments. Slow motion. What does the servant do? Okay, let's check your bags. And who does it start with? The oldest to the youngest. So here we go. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, all the way down. And they're sighing a breath of fresh, uh, you know, breath of relief. And then finally, who does it get to? Benjamin. And they're a little nervous. And all of a sudden, what happens? Out comes the silver cup out of Benjamin's back. And they are grief-stricken. Notice verse 13, they tear their clothes. They're they're grief-stricken, and it's in unison here. Notice what the brothers do not do. There's no side conversations here about how they're going to throw Benjamin under the bus. There's no scheming about how they're going to go back and lie to their father. They are all in unison as brothers grieving over this and they saddle up their donkeys and they go back to face the consequences. In essence, the brothers pass the final test. They don't throw Benjamin under the bus. But to make it even greater, we see a new leader emerge in the family, Judah. So let's go to scene two, Judah's self-sacrificing love. Let's pick up in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? 
And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to bring your servants, bring them down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when when our father said, go again, buy a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. A lot of words here. This is the longest speech in Genesis. And Judah takes center stage here as they're summoned back before Joseph. And they all fall down and and bow before him. and, And basically what Joseph says is, Benjamin's guilty, The rest of you go in peace back to your father. Now, they know they can't go in peace back to their father with Benjamin being guilty. Jacob's going to die if Benjamin does not go back to him. Benjamin's his pride and joy. And so what does Judah do? Judah takes the lead, and he humbly approaches Joseph and pleads his case. And this is the high point in Judah's life. Let me ask you a question. Who was the ringleader that persuaded the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery? If you go back and read, it was Judah. Who was the sex maniac that had incest with his daughter-in-law who dressed as a prostitute? Judah. He hasn't been a very good character up to now, but he's changed. He's a changed man. And you see two things here in Judah. Number one, he has a love for his father. Notice the word. The word father shows up 14 times in the speech. He loves his father, and he loves his brothers. And he will do anything to reunite his younger brother with his father. And secondly, he's willing to become a substitutionary sacrifice for Benjamin. 
Now, in verses 18 through 32, he basically gives the reason saying, listen, Joseph, my father will die. My father will die if, if Benjamin does not come back to him. So he pleads his case and says, please let Benjamin go back for the sake of the love of my father. He's pleading before Joseph. He's more concerned with his younger brother than he is himself. There's no jealousy here of Benjamin. There's no fighting for his rights. This is a selfless older brother that understands the love between Jacob and Benjamin, and he wants to protect that at all costs. He's he's not the the money-hungry man anymore that wants to sell Joseph into slavery. He's not the sex-crazed maniac. He is a changed man. He's leading with courageous, self-sacrificing leadership. And then the second part of the speech, verses 30 through 34, notice what he says. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Instead of. Instead of. In the place of. As a substitute for. It's the same word that was used in Genesis 22 when Abraham turned and saw the ram in the thicket instead of killing his son Isaac. This word means substitute. So what is Judah saying? Judah says... I'm going to step up to the plate and be a substitutionary sacrifice because I love my father and I love my brothers. I will take the guilt. I will take the brunt instead of Benjamin. Judah is willing to lay down his life for his father on behalf of his brothers. Does that sound very familiar to you? Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Jesus was willing to lay down his life because of his love for his heavenly father and his love for his people. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. And so Judah is acting in this type of manner. Judah takes the leadership. Judah steps up to the plate and says, because of my love for my father and my love for my brothers, I'm going to voluntarily lay down my life as a sacrifice in place of Benjamin. I'm going to bear the brunt. I'm going to bear the wrath. I'm going to bear the guilt. The same way Jesus did on the cross. Jesus bore our sin. Jesus bore our shame on the cross because of his love for the Father and his love for us. And Joseph sees this wonderful act of compassion, this wonderful act of sacrifice, this transformed brother, and he can't control himself any longer. He's about to lose it. So let's look at scene three, where the mask finally comes off. This is too much for Joseph to handle. He, he, can't, he can't hold himself anymore. He's got to reveal who he is. In light of Judah being willing to be a substitutionary atonement for his younger brother, and hearing about the love of his father, Joseph takes the mask off. Let's pick up in chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. 
So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Let me just stop right there. The word dismayed is kind of a, not as very strong in the original language. Really, the word in the original language means when you're in an army and you're about ready to face an enemy and you're paralyzed with fear where you can't move, that's the word there. His brothers were paralyzed in fear and finding out that this is Joseph. So Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me there, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Once Joseph can't control himself any longer, what does he do? He sends everybody out. Why does he send everybody out? He's no longer the prime minister of Egypt. He's a brother. And this is the the reunion, the reconciliation that we've been waiting for. And it needs to be a family moment, a private moment, an intimate moment where he can cry and he can weep and he can be himself before his family. And in in verse 3, he holds nothing back. It's raw. He drops the bomb and says, I'm Joseph. How is my father? I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And they're paralyzed. They, are, they, they can't move. They don't know what to think. What's going to happen in this moment? Would Joseph throw them into prison? Would Joseph kill them? Would Joseph beat them? They're paralyzed in fear. He could exact revenge in that moment and take the mask off and say, Ha ha, brothers. All this time you've had it coming. And here comes the hammer. Now's my time to get even. But what does he do? He says, come close. Come near. I want to tell you a secret that only you know, so that you know it's me, Joseph. Hey, you sold me into slavery. Nobody else knew that secret. It's the first time it had been uttered in 22 years. Only the brothers knew that secret. And for somebody else, especially an Egyptian, to know that, it had to be Joseph. 
Nobody else on earth would know that. But here comes the crux of everything we've been studying in the life of Joseph. Going all the way back to chapter 37, it comes to a head. Three times Joseph says something. What does he say? God sent me. God sent me. God did it. Brothers, you may think it was you that sold me into slavery. You may think it was you that mistreated me, and it was you that did all this, but behind it all, it was God who sent me. And the word sent in the original language was often used of of God sending a prophet on a mission to accomplish his will. But what, what good came out of it? What good came out of Joseph being sent? Well, Joseph answers the question. God sent me on this mission. God did all of this. Why? Joseph says very plainly in verses 5 and 7. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant to keep you alive. In other words, let's, let's not forget there's a famine going on. Jacob's family would die of starvation if Joseph had not come up with the plan to ration the food during those years of plenty and think about all the things that would happen if Jacob's family died of starvation. No promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. No nation of Israel. No King David. No Jesus. So there's a big picture going on here of what God is doing behind the scenes. God sovereignly ordained the treachery of the evil brothers to accomplish a greater good. So I need to stop, and we need to do some theology this morning. Are you okay with that? As your pastor, we've got to discuss something. It's very important to camp out here for a few moments. So here's the question. How do you reconcile... God's absolute sovereignty with human responsibility. It's all throughout the Bible. How do you come to grips with where God's sovereignty and human responsibility interact? How do you deal with that? How how do we come to grips with that? Well, I want you to notice the human responsibility in this passage. Notice verse 5. Joseph never gets his brothers off the hook. You sold me there. Brothers, you're guilty. You are responsible. You are accountable. At the end of the day, the brothers are accountable for acting freely in selling Joseph into slavery. There's the human responsibility. But at the same time, Joseph says three times, you didn't do it. God did it. God sent me. God sent me. God sent me. It was God's preordained plan. So God sovereignly used their evil to accomplish a greater plan. I think it's best said by our friend Artaxerdia. He expresses it the best when he talks about this passage of Scripture. Here's what he says. The brothers acted freely. God acted freely. God didn't make them act the way they did, and they didn't make God act the way he did. They acted according to their nature, and God acted according to his nature. And in the end, God's amazing eternal purpose was accomplished in the salvation of his family. So let's make this very real for you this morning. When sinful people hurt you, 
harm you, abuse you, God is not making them act that way. They are acting freely that way. They are doing it because they're acting out of their own nature. They're accountable for that sin. They're accountable for how they act. We must never excuse the evil actions of people and what they do to perpetrate on other people. People are accountable for their actions. They act freely. They act on their own nature. God does not make people act wickedly. Joseph's brothers acted wickedly, and they're accountable. They're guilty. No one made them do what they did. They did it freely. But, at the same time, God was acting freely. And God was doing things according to his nature. And God was orchestrating that those evil actions that the brothers did freely would eventually turn out for good. The salvation of people. Now, we sometimes can't explain this, and we don't understand all the implications of it, but I do know this. God is absolutely sovereign, and people are responsible, and at the end of the day, I don't know how the two come together, but I do know this, God always gets his way, and God's going to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, sometimes we may get confused with God's sovereignty. We may get concerned with God's sovereignty. We may even get angry at God. And we can try to play this game that the Bible never gives us permission to play. The Bible never tries to reconcile the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It just assumes it's there. And oftentimes what we try to do is we try to blame, am I going to blame God or am I going to blame others? And we play the game of who am I going to blame? When something wrong goes in my life, if something bad happens to me, I either blame the person or I blame God. Is it God's fault? Is it the person's fault? The Bible never addresses that issue. What the Bible addresses is, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of all of that, the question is not who's responsible, who do I hold accountable, who do I point my finger at? The question is, what is God trying to teach me through that? And how am I trusting that he's going to work out all things for good? Here's the amazing thing with, Jake, with Joseph. He forgives. He forgives those brothers lavishly. What does he say? Go back. Go back quickly. Go back quickly to Canaan and get my father and get the whole family and come back down here. I'm going to provide for you in the land of Goshen. You're going to have plenty. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to be safe the next five years of the famine. Come quickly. Let's have a family reunion and let bygones be bygones. I forgive you. He doesn't beat them. He doesn't imprison them. He he doesn't um, kill them. He forgives them. And up to this point, it's just been words. But notice what happens In verse 14, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all the brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brother talked with him. Do do you picture it in your minds here? After 22 years, there's weeping and there's touching and there's hugging and there's crying and there's talking. They talked with him. That's interesting how how verse 15 ends there. They talked with him. 
How do the brothers treat their 17-year-old little upstart Joseph when he had the coat of many colors 22 years earlier? Back in Genesis 37, verses 3 through 4, this is what we find. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. But now it comes full circle. What started out as anger and hatred and betrayal and jealousy and almost a plot to murder him and throw him into the pit now has come full circle to where all the brothers are kissing and weeping and forgiving and reconciliation. And here's the $10 million question for Joseph. After all that Joseph's been through, the treachery, the wicked, the evil, why in the world is he freed to forgive? How can he do it? How can he forgive? Because here's one thing that Joseph believes. Behind all the wickedness of these brothers, it was ordained by a sovereign God who either allowed it or ordained it or orchestrated it for good. How can you be freed to forgive others who've hurt you deeply? you realize that while they are still accountable for their sin, yes, God is still sovereign. And he can use that to accomplish a greater good. Now, sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we never see what God is doing. But we have to trust in his sovereignty to work all things out for good. And so let me just stop and just say something here. Theology matters, and here's why. You may wonder why at at Emmanuel Baptist Church we talk about God's sovereignty all the time, or we talk about the deep things of theology, or we may delve into the depths of theology. Why does Pastor Sean do that? Here's why I do that. At the end of the day, little topical sermons on seven steps to having your best life now will not help you in the midst of the storm. You will not stay sane if that's the type of theology you're living on. If your theology is that thin and you don't have a big view of God and a big view of what God's doing in the world and a big view of God's sovereignty, you're going to crush under the pressures of this life. Only a big view of a sovereign God is going to give you an anchor that holds in the midst of the trials that come your way. Joseph did. How in the world, can jo- How in the world is Joseph going to survive? Think about all that Joseph's been through. What kept him sane? What kept him anchored? What kept him solid? Listen to what he says. Let's let's hear it again. Verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You're accountable. You sold me here. But it was God who sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve life and a remnant. Verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but it is God. Joseph knew that while these wicked men did wicked things to him, it was all part of God's plan, and it worked out for good. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's make this a little bit deeper this morning. What is the greatest evil ever perpetrated against another human being in the history of the world? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross at the hands of wicked and sinful men who nailed him to a cross. 
Evil men murdered Jesus. The Jews plotted against Jesus. Pontius Pilate was the one who sentenced Jesus to death. Herod manipulated the events to work in the favor of putting Jesus to death. The Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. All these men acted freely out of their own nature to do a very wicked thing in crucifying Jesus. And on the day of judgment, they will be held accountable for acting freely to do that. But did you know that behind all of that, it was God's predestined plan that Jesus die. It is God's predestined plan that it would happen. God predetermined that Jesus, just like Joseph, might suffer enormously at the hands of wicked people so that in the end there would be salvation. Now you may say, well, where do you get that in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Two different sermons from Peter in the book of Acts clearly show us God's sovereignty, human responsibility, in the cross. Acts 2, 22 through 23. This is the, the first sermon at Pentecost. I want you to look at this passage of Scripture. I want you to see human responsibility, God's sovereignty, come together in one verse. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, do you see both of those in this passage? Peter basically looks them in the eye and says, you crucified Jesus. You're responsible. You're accountable. You crucified Jesus. You put him to death. You, you orchestrated the, the kangaroo court that got him sentenced to Pilate. Pilate is the one that put him to death. The Roman soldiers nailed him on the cross. You put Jesus to death. But notice what else he says in that passage of Scripture. If we can put that back up on the screen for just a minute. What else did he say? It was God's what? It was God's definite plan. Does that sound like God's sovereignty to you? The men acted freely. God acted freely. God didn't make the men do what they did. The men didn't make God do what he did. The men acted out of their own nature. God acted out of his own nature. And at the end of the day, the amazing thing happens is that it all worked out for good, the salvation of sinners. Let's look at another passage of Scripture. Acts 4, 27 through 28. We see it again. Again, let me just remind you, human responsibility, God's sovereignty, they're both in the Bible, sometimes in the same verse. We, we, we can't try to reconcile them, and we, we sometimes can't really figure out the tension there, but they're both there. Look at Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And he lists some people, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Okay, those men are all accountable. All those men are accountable. The Gentiles are accountable. The, the, the Jews are accountable. Pontius Pilate's accountable. Herod's accountable. They are all accountable. They all acted freely. They all did out of their own free will what they wanted to do to Jesus. They killed Jesus. But notice what the text says. They did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Does that sound like God's sovereignty? Yes. It was predestined to take place. God acted freely. They acted freely. God didn't make them do what they did. They didn't make God do what God did. At the end of the day, God wins. Now, don't ask me to explain it or understand it. 
but you've got to live in the tension of it. The greatest act of treachery and brutality ever done in the world were people acting freely out of their own nature, but God used it according to his definite plan to bring about the greatest thing that we could ever imagine. That's our salvation. Our salvation. So theology matters. It keeps you strengthened in distressing times. It holds your anchor in the storm. And really what theology does is it gives you the ability to keep your focus and your vision upon Christ and His goodness and His grace and that He makes all things work out for the good. So how can you be free to forgive those who've hurt you deeply? You trust in the sovereignty of God. And you realize that he never wastes an experience. And he's working it all out for your good and for his glory. And God, God does all things that are good for his children. And God's got a purpose and God's got a plan. And we may not understand it, but in the end, we can trust that he's working it out. And let me just root this forgiveness in the cross. The only way we can forgive others, the only way we can truly forgive others is because God forgave us. What does Ephesians 4, 32 say? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So let's make this real practical this morning. Is there somebody in your life right now that you need to forgive? Are you harboring bitterness in your heart against someone this morning? Are you having a hard time forgiving? Let me ask you to do something this morning. If you're having a hard time forgiving, then I challenge you to get a glimpse of this big God. This big God. And we may not always understand this big God. We may not understand always the way that he, he works, but, but we, can, we can trust him that in the end, he's going to work out all things for good. Now, we never excuse sin. The people that have harmed you did real harm. They're accountable for that. And maybe one day they'll pay for that. I don't know. I'm not going to excuse what people have done to you. There are real crimes that real people commit, and they will be held accountable for those. And if they're not held accountable for them right here in this life, they may be held accountable for them in the next life. God will work all that out. But one thing that we are called to do is to forgive. We have no choice in forgiveness. One time, I've told this story many times, one time, a lady came into my office and she sat down and she says, you know, I'm having a real hard time forgiving. I don't think God has called me to forgive. I looked at her and said, you have no choice. You don't have to sit around and wait for God to call you to forgive. You have no choice. The Bible says to forgive. Now, is it hard? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. Are there real wounds that we struggle with? Yes. Are there deep wounds? Are there deep wounds in this room today? Yes. But only a big God can give you the grace to truly forgive. And let me just say this. When you forgive, it's like a mountain of pressure that's released. And the floodgates can open and you can be free to forgive because you know that God works out all things for the good. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And are you freed to truly forgive? 
would you spend a few moments this morning in silent prayer asking the Lord to search your heart? Maybe there's someone you need to forgive this week or even this day. Would you be like Joseph and say, you're accountable, you're guilty, you did it, but I forgive you because I know that God has done this. God has worked out all things for good and God's got a plan and God wins in the end. Would you spend some time in prayer this morning? come before you this morning. I know because of just human, human experience that there has got to be a number of people in this room, Lord, who have been hurt, who've been wounded, who've been abused, who've been harmed in some way. And Lord, we never want to downplay what happened. We never want to excuse ungodly behavior. We never want to give people a free pass. Because Lord, you don't. You, you hold people accountable. But Lord, at the end of the day, we're called to forgive. And Lord, there may be people in our lives this morning that we're having a hard time forgiving. And that bitterness in our heart is just swelling up and festering and it's making us miserable on the inside. And Lord, the only way we can forgive is by your grace. We can't muster the willpower to do it. The strength has got to come from you, just like Corey Ten Boom prayed. Lord, grant me the grace to forgive this man. And she, she did. So Lord, would you grant us power and strength and grace to forgive this morning? Would we be free to forgive? Because, Lord, we, we know that you're a big God that's working out all things for good. We may not understand it. We may not even like it. But we know that you're good. And you do all things for the good of those who love you. We've been called according to your purpose. And, Lord, help us to always look to the cross and realize, Jesus, it was there that you forgave us. We did not deserve your forgiveness. We did not deserve your salvation. We did not deserve any of that. But you went to the cross willingly and you died for us and you forgave us while we were still sinners. And that gives us the hope and the power through the Holy Spirit to forgive others because you've forgiven us. And Lord, my prayers, if there's anybody in this room this morning that's never experienced your forgiveness, never experienced your love, never has trusted you for salvation, they've never repented of their sin, they never trusted in you alone, Jesus, for salvation, that today would be their day of salvation. Today they would, they would wave the white flag of surrender and stop living for themselves and stop living for, for, for what they think is, is real in their life and start seeing that, Jesus, you offer full forgiveness, full pardon, and an abundant life. We just need your grace this morning, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.